your head that you just can't quite get it. The second one is uh, somebody get me a doctor. Somebody need a doctor. Which everyone again can relate to. <laughs> Which one was that? Uh, it's done. That one was written around the same time as Running with the Devil. You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Now, crank it up. Hey, what's up, people? Steven here. I grew up a Van Halen fan. I've talked about it many times on the podcast before. And in particular, I grew up an Edward Van Halen fan. I worshiped the ground he walked. And for many, many years, I had, I had visions of grandeur that I could get to be as good of a guitar player as him. The only problem with that is I literally had no talent, <laughs> so I gave that up pretty quickly. But uh, my love for Van Halen has been professed over the years, so this episode is pretty cool for me. I'm interviewing Steve Rosen, who is author of Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen. Steve is a professional music journalist with a career spanning 50 years. During this period, he had published well over a thousand articles in major magazines originating from around the globe. Rosen was the West Coast correspondent for Guitar World magazine for four years during the seminal mid-80s when he wrote eight cover stories, including three lead features on Edward Van Halen, recognized as the pivotal piece on the legendary guitarist. As a contributor to Guitar Player magazine, Rosen also wrote a prodigious 16 covers in a six-year span, which is crazy. That's incredible. A recognized authority on the electric world of rock, Rosen has been tapped several times to write books on several high-profile musicians, including Jeff Beck, Prince, Bruce Springsteen, Black Sabbath, Free, Bad Company, and Randy Rhodes. Uh, we talk a little bit about that in this interview, as a matter of fact. Steve's favorite guitar player, I think bar none, was Jeff Beck. He'll tell you that. But he knew an awful lot about Edward Van Halen and the life of Edward because he spent many countless hours. He has 116 tapes of his conversations with Edward. And that's not even, he didn't even record all the conversations that he had with Edward. Edward would call him up in the middle of the night or he would just show up at his house from time to time. So Edward and Steve had quite the uh, uh, relationship for many, many years. So this interview is, uh, is fun. And truth be told, when I found out I was going to be talking to Steve, 
Uh, I had the book, but I'm not the quickest reader in the world. And so I really just sort of did a spot check on a lot of the chapters. I just went through chapters uh, as quick as I could, but I, there's no way I could read this book uh, from cover to cover uh, before this interview. And uh, I was up front with Steve about that. There were tons of questions that I really, really wanted to ask Steve and just never got around to him. I asked him quite a few things. A lot of it is just about what he felt like Edward's mindset was because he was there. So I figured maybe he might have a little bit more insight into some of the things that I wondered about. But my plan is really just to have Steve on again at some point in time and continue uh, especially once I read the book in full. But uh, we hope you enjoy this uh, interview with Steve Rosen. Like I said, it's crazy iconic. All the audio clips that you'll hear in this interview of Steve and Edward, to me, they're like historic pieces, and they should be treated as such. Hopefully one day these tapes will be cataloged and get the proper attention, because uh, he was one of the greatest guitar players of our time and uh, influenced millions. So I hope you enjoy this interview with author of Tone Chaser. Steve Rosen. Welcome to the Growing Up Rock podcast. Steve Rosen. Steve, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, man. I'm doing really good. I appreciate you having me on and giving me a chance to talk about what I like to talk about best, me. No, I'm kidding. Man. I, I, I appreciate your time. Looking forward to this. That's right. I'm sure the conversation will be filled with plenty of Steve Rosen, but it'll also cover that one subject that we're here for, which is Edward Van Halen, right? Absolutely, man. All right. So as I said in the bio earlier on, Steve's been around as a music journalist now for pretty much spanning 50 years, right? For the most part. Unbelievable, but but true. Yeah, you even got a few years on me, and I feel uh, old. How do you feel? <laughs> you know what, man? I don't feel my age. I, you know, I mean, I'm at the gym every day, and you know, I, I mean, I look in the mirror and I go, "Is that a is that a seventy year old cat?" You know, looking back at me. But you know, man, try to stay young and 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 just try to stay busy every day. So uh, yeah, it's all good. Well, I'll tell you what, man. You've lived the life that. A lot of 16-year-old kids growing up in the 80s would probably cut off their left leg for. I mean, you've had the opportunity to not only spend a bunch of time with Edward Van Halen, but yeah. a lot of just iconic guitarists over the course of time. I mean, this list ranges from Jeff Beck. You've interviewed Clapton as well, right? Clapton is my... Uh White Buffalo Man, he's the one that I never interviewed, that I always wanted to interview. You got Townsend too, right? Got Pete Townsend, got Jimmy Page, got Framden, Paul Kossoff, uh, Blackmore, got them all. I mean, most of those guitar players in the 80s. And then, you know, for me, it was going back to the generation before. It was all those classic rock guys. A lot of those English guys. I mean, you know, Trower and, yeah, man, all those guys. Clapton is the one that got away, unfortunately. Keith Richards, of course. But, uh, you know, yeah, most of my heroes, actually. I was lucky. The good news is Eric and uh, Keith are still alive. 
I know, man. I know. You know, the thing is, it makes me crazy. Eric is doing another Crossroads show out here in L.A. Actually, I think it's a couple of weeks. And, man, I just tried everything I could to, to you know, go uh, finagle a pass somewhere. I mean, I was willing to go buy a ticket. Yeah. But, you know, a ticket wasn't going to get me close enough to, you know, say, hey, Eric, here's my book. Edward Van Halen, you know, loved you. And so, yeah, frustrating. But, hey, that's, that's uh, I guess, that's the way it's meant to be, you know. Yeah, well, but you've got a lifetime of stories from some of the most iconic guitar gods in, in rock history, and that makes me envious, and I'm sure a lot of other people envious as well, and the stories that came out of that. I've always said that I felt like I was born maybe five, ten years too late. Uh, I was born in 66, so if I was born five or 10 years earlier, I would have been around of age when a lot of that classic stuff was hitting, but then maybe I would have been a little bit too old for the eighties. And I really, really love the eighties as far as music goes, you know? Interesting. You know, it's funny, man. I always thought I was born, uh, about, um, five or six years too late because for me, it was really that mid to late sixties, uh, primarily English thing. Like I just said, man, you know I mean? Uh, had I been born in hell, man, I might have been, uh, you know, I probably would have interviewed Eric, you know, three or four times. Or These guys are just beginning their careers. They need the press, right? They need to go out there and, and talk to newspapers and stuff. But I, I was really lucky to have started to write when I did, which is basically about late 72, 73. You know, rock and roll magazines were really just being born. Uh, you know, guitar player was around. Guitar world would come around. Cream and Circus were just coming into being. So it was really a nascent period for the magazines and, and for rock and roll journalists, you know, it was a great time to be around. The, the labels had an open door for journalists and, hey, we need you to write stories about Aerosmith and their second record and, you know, Loggins and Messina and, and stuff. So it was, it, was, it was pretty great. It was fun, fun days for sure. Please make sure you hit that follow button to subscribe to Growing Up Rock Podcast so you don't miss an episode. Oh yeah, light up the sky. That's my favorite. Is it? Yeah. Which one was that? The one. That, I wrote that song, the music, a long time ago. Or not a long time ago, but right after I guess our first record was mm -hmm. recorded. And uh, you know, I stick around and play it for the guys, and nobody really. Uh, and he's got a new rest. Nobody really said anything. And then um, when we came back off the tour, you know, we played all our new riffs and songs and whatever for Ted. And he really liked that one. And I was totally surprised huh. because it is kind of, it's a little more progressive. The changes are a little more bent mm -hmm. in a way, you know, mm -hmm. than, than the commercial stuff, the more simple stuff. So I was happy that he liked that. Burn. And it is the way of beauty, but you never get love. Christ's line would not return. 
going back to the Tone Chaser book, which is what we're going to talk about primarily today, correct me if I'm wrong, and and I'm just going to share this with the listeners, which is basically the entire book is various conversations that you recorded throughout the course of your relationship with Edward Van Halen, which span as early as 1977, 78 through 2003, off and on various conversations, you up at 5150, him over at your place, various phone conversations. And in between those phone conversations are kind of your thoughts and setting up what that conversation centered around and the premise of that conversation sort of setting it up before the actual transcription, correct? Yeah, man, that's a pretty uh, concise overview. So, yes, my main source were my interviews, right? So I had all my cassette tapes, and I, I used those as sort of the, you know, the basic map. And so I'd sit there and I'd listen to a bit, and I'd go, oh, yeah, I remember that. And, you know, I, I'd print a bit of the interview, and then I'd, I'd try to remember, you know, that was up at 5150 and, you know, Ed was smoking that day and, you know, he's really in a good mood that day. And, you know, so I, I, I tried to use every trigger I had because we have to remember, as you mentioned, Stephen, going back to 77, I mean, some of these conversations or what is that, 87, 97, you know, 46 years, 47 years ago, you know, and honestly, man, I, I forget what happens five minutes ago. So to dredge some of those memories up was really difficult. I tried to be as accurate as I could. I didn't make up anything. Look, I may have hyperbolized a little bit to, you know, um, have a little fun with some of those moments. But every single thing that I described happened. So, yes, man, they were all based on my interviews and what I call in the book uh, the Twilight Tapes. And those were basically the conversations I had with Edward that were kind of off the record. He had told me, listen. Record whatever you want. I don't care. Turn the cassette player on. So I did. I, I have regrets. I didn't have the cassette going more. But, you know, I'm, I'm happy with, with with all the content that I did have. And these Twilight Tapes conversations typically would happen late at night, which is why they were called Twilight Tapes. Edward would call me and he wanted to talk. And we'd just, you know, be talking about family or, you know, he was unhappy about something. He was happy about something. And those are really, uh, I, I mean, I love those moments. You know, I hear those and I, I can remember back and, and what Ed was feeling. And just just to backtrack for one moment, Stephen, to get everybody a, a little bit better foothold here. So back in 85, I was going to write Edward's authorized biography. I approached him and said, Ed, you know, I'd like to write a book about you. People are going to approach you to write books. I'd like to write a book. He goes, sure, man. You know, I can't think of anybody else that would do that. We signed a simple little contract. Basically, it was one paragraph I had typed up. And I have copies of those in the book. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness I kept those. Um, and then about a year later in 85, uh, it was a little bit more of an, elab an elaborate contract that was put together by his lawyer, which is basically about two or three paragraphs saying, yes, Stephen Rosen has the right to write Edward's biography, authorized biography, uh, the release of, of the project to be in the sole discretion of Edward Van Halen. You know, this basically gave Edward, and, and, and it's probably that way with any, you know, writer writing about someone, it's going to be the subject who has the final say-so when the book comes out. It's giving him the final okay on, on when the book came out. So I started interviewing his friends, guys who had promoted the shows, musicians he had played with, guys in the band, tech guys, you know, I was gathering stuff 
Uh, so to make a long story short, that book never happened, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our relationship ends in 2003. Fast forward 17 years, and I, I want to revisit the book. You know, uh, I, I'm not sure what it was. Some friends said, hey, man, you should write the book. I, I don't know what it was. I thought about it a long time, and I always put it aside. And so, yeah, those Twilight tapes, plus all the other interviews I had done that weren't published, sat on these cassettes for all these years. Nothing was ever published. I never let anything leak. And when I was writing the book, I felt that, you know, it was appropriate to release all that stuff. I, I think it showed, you know, this very, you know, I think they were deep dives into who Edward was. I don't think I was betraying any trust. And, um, you know, from the responses I've gotten, people kind of really love the book and Thank you for writing the book. And gosh, I, I know so much more about Edward than I did before. Well, let me jump in here because I, there's so much to unpack there. And I've got I've got a ton of questions that I want to talk about around this. So first of all, Tone Chaser is not the book that was originally envisioned when you and Edward signed this piece of paper that you've got in the book because it's there. Edward signed it. The conversation is there. All that stuff is there. But Tone Chaser is the book that sort of came out of all that after 17 years or whatever, where you had all these tapes and, uh, you know, all this stuff had happened. That's what Tone Chaser is, right? More or less. No, no, that's exactly correct. And I think about that now. And people said, well, people have asked, well, what if you wrote the book back in, you know, 87 or 88? I go, well, it would have been an entirely different book because it was of an era. So, you know, then I'm still hanging out with Ed. So I'm writing the book still hanging out with him, the whole feel of the book would have been different. I think it would have been more strictly interviews with Edward, you know, it would have been more of a, of a, of a real narrative by him, uh, you know, and I might have put a little bit of connecting tissue between, but yeah, it would have been an entirely different book. Yes, Tone Chaser is the result of all those interviews that I did back in the day. Right. So full transparency to the listener, I've had this book for roughly two and a half weeks, maybe, and any of the listeners that have been with the podcast long enough know that I'm not the fastest reader in the world. I can I can barely string together a sentence. So I'm not the fastest uh, reader in the world. So I got through as much of the book as I could. And honestly, I bounced around a lot because there's a lot of years and I would look at, he has the dates next to the conversations that happened in the table of contents. And I would just bounce around and say, okay, well, I know what was going on, me being the Van Halen fan I am and pretty knowledgeable about Van Halen. So I I knew what was kind of happening in Ed's life or the uh, band's life at this particular time of date. So I would find those dates in the table of content and go, let me see what he was telling Steve at this time. And so that's how I treated it. Now, eventually, I want to read the whole damn book because the conversations, I mean, they're mesmerizing. A lot of the conversations are almost (laughs) dare I say train wreck like where you don't you just can't you're you can't not listen you want to or read really in this particular case because some of the things I was just scratching my head going (laughs) what is up with him because he would take a left turn and the conversation at times I mean I I found just some of just bouncing around I found some of the conversations hugely intimate maybe is the right word and and like i almost like should i even be hearing this 
There was one conversation that took part, and I'm not going to give it away. I'm going to let the readers give that away, and I'm going to ask you some other questions centered around it. But there's one conversation in there where you and he are having a conversation as he and Valerie's marriage is, is basically breaking up. And I was just like, okay, I shouldn't be hearing this, but I kept reading. <laughs> I, I know exactly what conversation you're talking about, Stephen, and trust me, as maybe difficult as it was for you to read, but you kept reading, I sweated bullets and tears and, you know, God, do I really write that down? And there were there were several moments like that. And again, you know, it, it's just that book that I had to write. And if I didn't put that in, then there were 10 other pieces that I shouldn't have put in. And I could have left out, you know, uh, all that stuff. You know, yeah, Ed, I never saw Ed drink. Or I never saw any drugs, or I didn't do drugs with them. I mean, I could have, I, I could have written that kind of book. I could have written a book. I could have just, you know, put the interviews together. It would have been an easy book to write. But I, I didn't think I was betraying anybody. I wasn't trying to hurt anybody. This is what Edward told me. Did you leave out some stuff? Oh, in terms of that, uh, no. There was, it was. I would say it's about ninety-nine percent there. Yeah, man. I mean, um, you know, he and I did rob a liquor store one night. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. It is time to stop pointing. Let me ask this. So, all right. Being that said, you, you stressed how you felt like you weren't betraying anybody. I got it. And you got all this great stuff on tape. And, and, and again, before you go on, Stephen, understand that that stuff has been sitting on a tape yeah. for 17 years. Okay. I got you. So, so you have to take it in context as well. Okay. I got you. So okay. I'm going to ask a couple of different things. First of all, why this book now? And also, let me say this. So Tone Chaser didn't just come out yesterday. This has been out for a bit. And now you're, uh, you sold out of that. So you, you did a second pressing, right? Correct. That's sort of what we're talking about here. Or what we want to promote here is there's another pressing. And did you add stuff to that second pressing or no? Right. And answer to your second question first here. Uh, no. Well, I take it back. So, so the second pressing obviously has a different cover. And if I may, so here's the cover. And everybody knows that first cover is Ed with the guitar. The back cover um, uh, is identical to the back cover of the first, except this photo that was in black and white is actually a color photo. I just wanted that first cover to be all black and white. I've added some more names of people, uh, some musicians who uh, have read the book and, and kind of dug it and were kind enough to um, post some blurbs. The text is identical. There are three more photos uh, in the photo section of this book than there were. In the first one, and uh, I don't want to give the graphics away in the book. They're called the end pages. That's the page on the inside of the cover. On the first edition, it's black. On this edition, and don't tell anybody, it's a different color. But, you know, <laughs> other than that, the text is identical. Returning to your second question there, Stephen, why was 2020 the year to start writing the book? Honestly, it, it, it sort of snuck up on me. I mentioned that I had some friends who kept banging on me, hey, man, you should write the book. I know you've got all these stories at Edward. Part of me, to be honest, really honest, um, and I kind of address this in the book, I was afraid to write the book. Look, we're talking about arguably, the, you know, the greatest guitar player on the planet. And, you know, am I going to do him justice? But not in the story itself, but more just as a, as a technician, as a writer. I wanted those words to jump off the page the way Edward's solos would jump off and that with his guitar. You know, I wanted to match in beauty and majesty, in words, what he was doing on the guitar. You know, I realize I'm kind of at cross references here. 
So it took me a long time to, to think, can I really write this book? Maybe some other writer should write this book. I finally thought, okay, maybe I can, maybe I can write this book. I had a cat who's also famously written about the book called Arpeggio. Arpeggio, um, and this goes months before I started writing the book, he used to wake up at insane hours in the morning wanting to be fed. So I'd wake up and feed him and try to go back to sleep. And inevitably, he'd jump back into bed. He'd prefer he wanted to play. So one night after feeding him, like at three in the morning, I, I went and set up the typewriter and just started typing out stuff. And I wasn't quite sure what I was doing, you know. And I had like the first couple lines of the intro. Hey, everybody, I'm, I'm, I'm happy you, you've got my book and this and that. And I look at it and I go, hey, you know what? This isn't bad. This is, this is okay. This is a little different. This is me talking to the reader. I can write that story about me being there, you know. And so it, honestly, man, it, it just grew. It just grew. It was an incredibly difficult book to write because of the length, because of the amount of interviews and stuff I had to go over, because I poured over every word and I wanted them to be great and beautiful and wonderful, you know. And 14 months later, you know, Tom Chaser was done, self-published the book after being turned down by every single agent I approached. Why do you think that was? That's interesting to me. If I had an answer for you, I, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I mean, this is, you know, I'm the most modest person who's ever lived. So, but I thought, hey, you know what? I'm approaching an agent as the only writer who ever had a friendship with Edward Van Halen. Not the only writer who ever interviewed him, because there are other writers who did that. Did that, Brad Talinsky and, and Chris Gill and their wonderful book. Um, you know, those guys did a lot of interviews with Ed. But when that interview was done, they went home. When I interview was done, Ed would come over and hang out at the house and have a beer. Or we'd jam on the guitar. Not that that happened all the time. So I'm thinking, I've got this once-in-a-lifetime story about hanging out with the greatest guitar player in the world. I have all these unreleased interviews, all these insights. These agents are going to fall over themselves to want to rep the book. I sent out, you know, little cover letters. And I'm not like a big cover letter, you know, put together a marketing plan. This is what I'm not that kind of person. But I thought just by introducing the book that they were going to go insane. I got one response from one agent said, hey, send me an excerpt from a chapter. So I picked an excerpt and sent it to him and never even heard back. So that was uh, discouraging. That was like, how is that possible? My good friend, Niels Lozauer, he who took those wonderful photos of the book. Yeah. I've known Niels since 74. Neil is a very opinionated guy. He's really loud. He's in your face, but I love the guy. And he's always had my back. Who's also taken the most extraordinary photos of Edward Van Halen that anybody has, um, as well as Motley Crue and the Who and everybody else. So I, I was going to reach out to Neil. Say, hey, Neil, you know, maybe you know an agent or a publisher. He goes, ah, you don't want a publisher. What are you, they're just going to take your book. You're not going to make any money. Why do that self-publish? <laughs> that actually sounds like Neil. That's pretty good. <laughs> oh, you know, Neil. Hey, don't be a moron. Don't be an idiot. Well, what do you, don't, don't be a fool, you know? So I said, hey, you know what? Okay. Found a printer, had the book printed. The book came out beautifully, man. It looks amazing. Uh, you know, put it out there and started posting on social media, reaching out to my guitar player buddies. And um, yeah, man, sold out of that first run. And I'm about a quarter of the way through the second run. And uh, again, the response has just been overwhelming. I mean, I, it's, uh, you know, I mean, honestly, it's all I could have asked for. I'm, I'm proud of what I did, you know? I mean, I really am. You can help out the podcast greatly by leaving us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Spotify. The links are in the show notes. Or just drop us a line at our email, growinguprock at gmail.com. What was that one tune with the, it didn't seem to fit with the rest of the songs. It was too, it was more progressive, mm -hmm. a little more progressive than the rest, so we decided to leave it off. Mm -hmm. 
What was the one tune with that little uh, Townsend? Uh, Romeo. Yeah. Romeo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't mind. <laughs> what, Bang in the Eastern on the ticket. What kind of what are the chords that you're playing on the the one song with the the little vibe thing? It's like in between the verse. Oh, that's the same yeah. song. The same song. Yeah. Listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. I got to get into some of these stories, man, because it's just, there's just so much here and I want to unpack some of this. So you knew Ed and you wrote a book about Randy Rhodes, correct? Okay. So did you ever meet Randy, first of all? So no, in in answer to your your question, no, Stephen, I never interviewed Randy. Okay. That book was actually sort of presented to me. Um, Andrew Klein, who I sort of co-wrote the book with, had sort of written the book. You know, it, it, it was pretty rough, and he, he needed someone to kind of, you know, make it cohesive and make it read nicely. So I kind of did my thing to it and, and kind of rewrote what he had written. Here's why I asked, though. Here's where I'm going with this question. There's a lot that was said about the early years of Van Halen and Quiet Riot in the clubs, right? The club scene in the 76, 77 era. There was a lot said, especially in the new Randy Rhodes documentary, about the rivalry between Eddie and Randy. And I was curious. I wanted to know whether you'd ever met or interviewed Randy. You answered that. No. But we know that you spent more than enough time with Edward. So my question is, did Randy ever come up in any of those conversations? That's a great question. Edward never brought up his name. We were having a conversation. I think it was one of those interviews that was just kind of here and there. And I said, uh, well, what do you think about Randy Rhodes? You know, it was, oh, yeah, he's a good guitar player. He's one of the few guitar players who has acknowledged that I, Edward, was an influence on him. That's about all Edward said. Andrew, uh, the co-author of that book that I wrote with him, knew Randy pretty well. And he knew a lot of people that were friends with Randy and, and you know, were, were inside that circle. And there was, I never heard Edward say that to me, and I never met Randy, but um, they said, yeah, it was a pretty intense rivalry, you know, that, that it wasn't always so polite all the time. So, yeah, I, I honestly, man, it's one of those areas of conversation. I, I, I could have spent hours, obviously, talking to Edward about Randy and all those other guitar players that were around at the time. There were some other remarkable guitar players, you know, A.D. Slam, George Lynch, and Warren Martini, and this guy's sort of crazy good. Rusty Anderson, who's now McCartney's guitar player. Um, But, you know, those were conversations I thought I was going to have thinking that the book was going to happen back then. But, you know. Well, I'll tell you what. There's a story in the book, and I I need you to tell it. It's just a little thing. I read it, and I was like, is this a dream sequence? Or, no, this actually (laughs) happened. I personally, and I'll give you my story, I personally have met Yngwie Malmsteen once. 
And I said, you know, you're a great guitar player. You're a really incredible guitar player. And I think he turned around to me uh, and I said something to the effect of, I really love this song, whatever song that was. I don't remember even which one I told him. And he turned around and said, of course, I wrote it. <laughs> and walked away. And I was like, okay, this guy has to be one of the biggest tools on the face of the earth. And then, of course, you go on through history, name it, and you hear all these stories. But you got a story that trumps them all. Can you share that story with the listener, please? My story is pretty fantastic, folks. <laughs> so so uh, I need to start at the beginning here, and, and, and I'll try to give you all the pieces here. Yeah. So uh, my best friend was... Uh, Jimmy Waldo. Jimmy was the keyboard player in Alcatraz. Mm -hmm. Previous to that, he was in a band called New England. Mm -hmm. And um, they had gotten this guitar player, Ingmay Malmsteen, uh, into the band. Jimmy knew I was writing for guitar mags, you know, I was always looking for new guitar players to, to talk to. And he says, man, you, you got to talk to Ingmay. And I think I've maybe heard of Ingmay. Um, he came out of uh, Steeler. Correct. You know, I don't know if I'd ever heard him play, but, but, but I, I, I kind of recognized the name. It was bouncing around L.A. So he says, yeah, man, you got, you got, to, you got to interview Ingve. I said, okay, cool, man. I was living in the Hollywood Hills, and Ingve was living out in the valley, San Fernando Valley. It's about, you know, a half hour from where I live. And so we set up the interview. And so I go, you know, and uh, he was living in an apartment. So I go and I knock on the door, and this guy answers, and it's Ingve. He's kind of a big guy, you know, kind of, you know, pretty beefy. And um, uh, he's got a guitar on. You know, and my first thought was, oh, that's cool. I love when, when I'm interviewing a guitar player and they're playing guitar. It's captured on tape and you can hear them moving. I, I mean, I love that stuff. And so, you know, he's kind of playing around, you know, he's like, hi, Steve Rosen. He goes, hi, how are you? I'm coming in. So I sit down and I set up my little cassette player. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what my first question is. Um, or maybe because he was playing guitar, he goes, oh, you must uh, practice a lot, you know. And he says, I'm like, oh, just a minute, man. I'm, I'm not done practicing. I said, okay. So he wasn't done. You know, I interrupted a, 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 one of his practice routines. I get it. So I'm sitting there and he's just doing these, you know, crazy runs, man. I'm watching him. I'm thinking, my God, the guy is, he, he, he was, he was, he was unbelievable. He was extraordinary. I mean, so I'm kind of watching him, you know, so probably, I don't know, 10 minutes go by. So I, I tried to jumpstart the conversation again. So anyway, you know, tell me about, where's it going? I'm, I'm still not done yet. So I sit there and literally, man, another 15 or 20 minutes goes by. And by this time, it's like, I'm annoyed. I'm a little perturbed. It's like, okay, I, I get it. You know, you're an amazing guitar player. Maybe you want me to watch you play. So we start talking, and he's impossible. <laughs> he's got a monster ego. You know, I bring up Richie Blackmore. I knew that he was a Blackmore guy. I think maybe Jimmy told me, or uh, somehow I just knew. He goes, oh, I don't really listen to Richie too much, you know. And then I talk to him about practicing. He goes, oh, I don't really practice too much, man. For me, my benchmark was always asking somebody about Jeff Beck. And if somebody said, well, I don't listen to Jeff Beck, it's like I just missed them. Like, you don't <laughs> listen to Jeff Beck? I don't care who you are. I'm not interviewing you anymore. I kid. But, you know, that was like, for me, that was like, you know, you better be aware of Jeff Beck because my mind he was great. So I said, well, what about Jeff Beck? And he goes, I've never heard of him, man. I said, you've never heard of Jeff Beck? He goes, no, man, I've never heard of Jeff Beck. I go, okay, man. So we continued to, to talk. This, I guess his string was dirty, and I can remember this so clearly. You know, a guitar player will sometimes, you know, kind of run his finger or like his fingernail down a string to get off like the dirt, you know, that is uh, 
accumulated there. So he does this, man, and I watch as that string was like a first or second string cut into the patty flesh of his first finger on his left hand. And I'm telling you, man, I swear it looked like it cut to bone. It starts bleeding over his finger. And I mean, it's bleeding to the point where, dude, I think you might need to go to the hospital. He goes, no, 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 no. He goes into the bathroom. I don't mean to laugh at it because it was horrendous. He goes into the bathroom and he's wrapped toilet paper on it, you know, like a big roll of toilet paper, and it is soaked through. I thought he was going to pass out from the loss of so much blood. <laughs> that night, they had a live performance on a show called Midnight um, Special. Bands would actually go on and play live. I don't know how he got through the show. So yeah, so that's, that's part A of the conversation. So I sent, sent in the interview, it was for Guitar World. They print the headline on the cover, this was not my cover, the God with the chip on his shoulder. And actually, it was pretty brilliant. I thought that was pretty fair. They print the story, and of course, they take the Jeff Beck quote from him and put it in bold. Jeff Beck, man, I never heard of him. <laughs> My opening line was Ingve Malmsteen. Nobody knew how to pronounce his name. So I put Ingve in brackets, rhymes with Stingray. I thought that was pretty clever. Yeah. They rewrote that and put Ingve rhymes with Oive. And for those of you who aren't Jewish and don't know Yiddish, oy vey is a Yiddish expression with, which means, oh my God, or, oh no. <laughs> so I thought, oh my God. Flash forward another couple weeks, three weeks, uh, Ronnie Dio was headlining the forum. Afterwards, there's a party at a club on the Sunset Strip called the Cat and Fiddle, which is like an English pub, or, you know, a, the facsimile of what they thought an English pub was like. So I'm there, Jimmy's there. And Yngwie's there. So I kind of see him, you know, and I, I you know, I, I ignore him by this point. So he walks over and he's drunk. I mean, he's really drunk. And I have a drink and I never drink because I, I was afraid of a migraine headache. But I had a gin and tonic and I was nursing a gin and tonic. So I'm saying that he walks over and he goes, oh, you fucking asshole. You know, so I, he is so beneath my radar. I don't care what he's going to say to me, you know. He goes, you're a fucking lousy writer. You're a fucking liar. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, Yngwie, every single thing. I wrote, you said to me, and I'll play you the tape. You said, you're a fucking liar, man. So I don't know if I can say this, but I'm going to say it. He goes, you fucking Jew. And I sit there and I take that in. He goes, you are a fucking Jew. And I go, that's it. <laughs> so I take my drink, man. It was like I was in a Western. I toss it into his face, you know, and he's kind of temporarily blinded. And I kind of hit him, slap him, push him down. And he's bigger than me, man. And I am going to rip his arms off. And we're down on the ground. And I'm telling you, man, I... I I saw red. I wanted to hurt him as much as I could. The bouncers come over, pull us apart. I told Wendy Dio, Ronnie's wife and manager, what had happened. They do like, you know, like the fireman's hold man. Two guys like have his legs and two guys have like his arms. He's like, you know, horizontal, you know, and they literally toss him out of the club. And it was just an amazing moment. And then next day, a buddy of mine who wrote for the, um, I think it was called Polestar, who they list like, um, like what a concert would gross, that kind of thing, right. like a businessman. Stan Findell wrote, he said, yes, yeah, Steve Rosen, normally a meek uh, rock and roll journalist, clutches out Yngwie <laughs> Malmsteen. Last bit. Afterwards, I don't know how we heard about it, uh, David Lee Roth had like an after-hours club, which was nothing more than this room upstairs. Somehow he got a license to serve beer. It's called the Zero Club. I mean, it was a dump. Anyway, uh, Jimmy and I go, and we walk in there, and Yngwie's there. 
and he starts walking over and Jimmy, who's in the band with him, he's in the band, Alcatraz, he goes, dude, if you take one more step, I'm, I'm going to fucking floor you. This is saying that you you know. So that's my eBay story. Fast forward again to 95. I get an assignment from Player, a Japanese magazine. We want you to fly to Miami to interview Ingbe. My first instinct, instinct was, no freaking way. But then I thought, hey, you know what? Ingbe, you know, has a list of the guys, you know, his interview list. If he knows it's me, he knows I'm coming. And he said, yes, I'm going to go. Besides, it was a free trip to Miami. So I go with Niels Lozar. And I'm thinking, you know, if he comes at the door and he's, you know, an asshole, I'm just going to turn around and walk away. So anyway, he comes to the door and he was apologetic as he could be he apologized. I'm so sorry. I was drunk. I was, you know, all these things. I didn't mean that, you know. The guy was an amazing host. He took us out to dinner. He, he let us play all his guitars. He had a big collection of, of movie memorabilia, the gun that Robert De Niro had in The Taxi Driver. He was just an amazing host. And he was cool. And from that day, I probably interviewed him, interviewed him four or five times on the phone. He was cool every single time, you know. He just, he couldn't get out of his own way. He really brought a lot that that whole classical rock thing, man, that that was all him. Um, it's unfortunate he just had that ego thing going on, man. But, um, yeah, but it turned out he was actually a very nice guy, and in the end, it all worked out. And that, of course, coupled with alcohol doesn't help. Oh, man, it was bad. <laughs> you know, he crashed, he crashed one of his cars, you know, one of his Ferraris. A few times, I think. What's that? I said a few times, I think. Yeah, I don't think he's yeah, had just yeah. one wreck. He's had a few wrecks. Yeah, I mean, I literally can't stand to see him in concert because I think I saw him the last time I saw him was in 2019 and his show. Now he does all the singing, which is not good, by the way. And his band, he literally has his band off to the side of the stage. The stage is basically him and about 4000 marshals. Yeah. And that's the stage. And then he sings and he plays and his drummer and his keyboard player are pretty much just almost off the entire stage. They're off to the side. And it's just it's not good. <laughs> I mean, that's just my personal my personal feeling is, you know, you can stand it for about five minutes and then I'm good. You know? Yeah, man. No, it's it, it's it's unfortunate because, I mean, he. He was a big part of, of the development of that style of, of electric guitar. I mean, on that first solo record, I mean, he played incredibly. Yep. I mean, you know, you can't you can't take that away from him. But yeah, he just uh, he just yeah he just wouldn't listen to anybody and angered a lot of people he shouldn't have angered. And yeah, that's what it is. Let me get back to Tone Chaser here. I took a left turn, but I needed that story to be told because it's just too good in the book. We talked about Tone Chaser and a lot of the personal stuff that's on there, and you felt okay. You felt like you weren't betraying anybody, and that's that's fine. Do you have any relationship with that family, with Wolfie, with Al? Are they mad about the book? I mean, do you? what are you hearing from that side of things? I have no relationship with any of them. I have not heard one word from them. You know, I, I keep thinking, well, do they know about the book? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, maybe, you, you know, I mean, Wolf does a lot of stuff on social media, you know, as you come across a thing for the book, you know, maybe he has, I mean, I don't know. He's extremely vocal. So if he he's got to know because he's a younger guy, he's pretty up on stuff. He takes to social media all the time. He's got to know about it. And if something rubbed him the wrong way, I don't think he'd hesitate to tweet about it because he's all over stuff. 
So I, I just didn't know whether you had heard anything, whether he said, oh, uh, you know, I support this or oh, this guy, he's just trying to, you know, give love a bad name. <laughs> I don't know what it, what he tweets out, you know? Yeah, you know, I mean, I have a, you know, I keep thinking that that Wolf would reach out, you know, and, and maybe only peripherally about the book, you know, maybe he's heard about the book, but he would think, hey, this guy knew my dad for 26 years. You know, knew him back in 77. Obviously, Wolf wasn't born, you know, and this guy knew my dad before me, obviously. And, um, you know, I wonder what he could tell me about my dad. But, you know, I guess people don't, don't think that way. I mean, uh, you know, the reverse of that, you know, should I reach out to them? I don't know, man, maybe it's leave things be. And if they are unhappy with the book, I don't want to know. I don't want to hear about it. I don't, I don't need to hear that. I mean, trust me, there are easier ways to make a living than <laughs> writing books. And anybody who reads the book knows that it's 600 pages of me saying how much I love the guy. And, and that to understand him, you know, these other bits and pieces had to be there. If not, it's just the same book that's been written before. Um, you know, and I couldn't write that book. And, um, so yeah, no, unfortunately I haven't. And, and I did want to say one more thing, Stephen, along those lines. I, I did uh, begin this book two months before Edward passed. No one has ever said that, you know, like, oh, you wrote the book after Edward passed and this and that. No one has ever said that because it's not true. I, I finished the book on August 24th because I remember that because it was my birthday. And it passed uh, October 6th. Yeah, so I didn't want to mention that. And, and secondly, you know, when Edward did pass, I, I, I did have a lot of thoughts about, well, gosh, do I even put the book out now? And, and you know, now it's like, it's a whole other thing to think about. But, but at the end of the day, I, you know, I had written it, you know, I, I thought that I had done a good job and, you know, I wanted the book out there. Okay. So just to give the listener a little bit of context, Steve, you knew Edward Van Halen starting in and around 77, 78, right at the beginning, basically, of all this stuff. You were introduced to him by a very good friend who booked bands at the Whiskey. You met him one night at the Whiskey at a Cheap Trick show, if I recall correctly. Real yep. quick, did Van Halen play at that open at that Cheap Trick show, or he just happened to be there? That's a good question. I know. Uh, he would, he just happened to be there. Okay. Uh, and I was there because Cheap Trick was recording a live record, and I thought, hey, that's that should be called Cheap Trick at the Whiskey. This is before they blew up with Budokan. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm a big Cheap Trick fan. So is Ed. But no, uh, Van Halen did not play. All right. So that's where you met him. Your relationship covers the span of all these years up until 2003. And then it sort of ends. Do you want to share with the listener however much you want to share? What happened in 2003 to where that sort of ended? So I don't want to give the ending away to anybody who hasn't read the book. Yep. The relationship did end in 2003. The relationship had been changing for years prior to that. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to give that stuff away. I think that's just, you know, a pretty critical part of the book. But Edward was changing and I don't know why. I don't know what it was. What I found out subsequently after we stopped speaking in 2003 was that Ed was really going through some turmoil in his life. He was sick. Um, which I didn't really know about. The marriage was not doing well. I think his relationship with, with the label wasn't going well. And, you know, there's some chronicling of Edward sort of post-2003, and we see him sort of dressing kind of shabbily, and Edward always dressed impeccably. I mean, it, it closed fit on him so perfectly, you know. He always, honestly, man, he always looked so healthy, and he was like, you know, this physique and his hair, you know, so 
but we see some of those pictures and he doesn't look so healthy. So yeah, it, it just came to an end. And I try to explain about that in the book. And it may have been more, it may have been things that I, I didn't know about, as I just mentioned. It was terrible to this day. I, I think about that and think, God, you know, what happened? How does, how does that happen? You, you, you know, but uh, yeah, it was unfortunate. Um, it was one of those things. And yeah, I, I tried to answer as best I could in the book. And hopefully people read that and go, oh, I, I, I can see, I can kind of see what happened. Yeah. So. I'm not a psychiatrist in any way, shape, or form. I did spend the night in the Holiday Inn Express last night, so there's some credibility to my PhD. You stupid, ignorant son of a bitch, dumb bastard! But what I will tell you is, as I read these conversations that take place between you and Edward, where you've transcribed the tapes, and it's, here's what Ed said, here's what I said, here's what Ed said, to me... It's almost like Edward is trapped in a little kid's mindset. It's an adult trapped in a little kid's mindset. Like, here's this brilliant guitarist. We know musically he's got an incredible mind. But I keep reading things that he said in these conversations. I'll read these little left turns that he took with you in some of these things. Like, just from hugging and kissing you and being buddies with you to acting like he doesn't know you and just weird things like that. And then I read Noel Monk's book, and I know that you were asked to work on that, which you declined. And I get that. I understood a lot of that. But there's stuff that Noel says in there that's like almost unbelievable. The one thing that that sticks out in my head the most is where Noel mentions uh, that Edward came to him and said, hey, uh, I think I got this girl pregnant. And and he basically said he thought he got this girl pregnant from getting a blowjob. And I was like, there's no way. There, there's no way some 21-year-old or however old he was, he was tw- in his 20s, thought that nobody is that naive or dare I say stupid. Nobody, that can't be true. But then I'll read some things in your book and I'll be like, I don't know. What is your thought on that? I mean, am I am I way off base in my perception of him or or I mean, it, it's it's almost like I've seen some of these things in some of the stuff that Michael Jackson used to say where it's like, okay, this dude just is a man trapped in a kid, you know, with a kid's mindset. I don't understand. What what are your thoughts on that? I mean, that's an excellent question, man. You know, I spent 580 pages trying to answer that. And in fact, the, the title of the book, Tone Chaser, yes, obviously, the first reference is to Edward in, in his pursuit of tone. But it's sort of Tone Chaser, you know, looking for the tone of his life, you know. We're all Tone Chasers in that respect, but looking for the tone of our life. and You know, what does that sound like, you know. And the other part of that, understanding Edward has kind of a, a double thing there. So it's understanding Edward's like, you know, you and me and, and the audience trying to understand Edward. And it's understanding Edward, understanding as a, um, as an adjective, you know, understanding Edward. Edward was an understanding person. So trying to answer your question, you know, I don't know if, if he was so much like a, a little kid. I, I just don't think he was, I don't think he ever truly understood that he was Edward Van Halen at that time, the greatest or considered the greatest, most influential guitar player on the planet. I don't think he had a sense of what that meant. And I, I keep saying it wasn't that 
he didn't know he was good. He knew that he was a very good guitar player. He never said to me, is that the greatest solo you ever heard? Or that guy sucks. Or Oh, he did say that guy sucks a couple times in the book. <laughs> he did. He was, you know, he was, but he was, I think it's because those guys were sort of, they had taken some shots at him, I think. Um, those particular guitar players. But, I mean, it's such a difficult question. Yeah, I, I, a lot of times I, I couldn't understand why he felt like he did. I mean, I mean, you see what I'm saying, though, right? You see what I'm getting at. It's it's not it's not about his talent. Uh, it's not about the music he writes. I mean, I look, I'm a huge Van Halen fan. They're my number one band, and I'm a huge Edward Van Halen fan. I love him, but just as a normal human being adult, you know, an adult human being, there are certain things that come out in these conversations that I'm just like, okay, nobody that's playing with a full deck is going to go here or say this. And, and it's not, I'm not trying to cut the guy short. I'm not trying to belittle him. I'm, I'm just trying to figure it out because and maybe, it, you know, who knows? Maybe it was all the drugs and alcohol over the years that deteriorated something. I don't know. I don't know how that stuff affects people. I'm not a drug or alcoholic, so uh, I have no context. All I can do is analyze what I'm reading, which were taken from tapes. I heard some of the conversations. It's not even what I'm reading. It's whatever. I mean, I've heard some of these conversations that happened on your YouTube channel. You play some of these tapes, and it's like, okay, that's just... It's just weird to me. So I was wondering, having been the person that's sitting in the room, whether you ever thought about that or had those perceptions. And I, it's fine if you don't want to say that. Uh, it's okay with me. But that's just some of the things. I mean, I think everything that you said, I think he had a huge amount of pressure on his shoulders. You talk in the book about his, we'll call it disdain for uh, Michael Anthony and you know, I, everybody knows the story by now where they cut Mike out of the publishing for 1984, which Sammy Hagar says is not the truth, but that's what everybody reported from no monk on down. Sammy Hagar was on an interview, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, said that is not true. But the bottom line is, you know, he was did not like the fact that Mike never contributed to the band. Mike just showed up, collected a paycheck. I would say, so did your brother. <laughs> I mean, so did Al. What did Al do? Al didn't write anything musically. And at least, you know, at least Michael contributed background vocals. So I don't know. What are your thoughts with that? I think with Mike, I mean, I mean again, I write about this. I mean, he loved Mike. I mean, he loved Dave. And he said that many times. Um, I just think that, yeah, there was a lot of pressure on him. And I, I think he just felt disrespected that he thought, you know, you know, maybe Mike could have worked a little harder at it. You know, in terms of Al, yeah, Al didn't write anything, but I'm sure Al was there every day with were in the studio playing drums. Or That was one of the things I found interesting, though, in a lot of your conversations and a lot of your back and forth between you and Edward, I didn't see Al's name come up all that often. Is that wrong, or did I just miss that? Al comes up a couple times. I mean, I, I brought him up. No, I, I don't think that's odd. I mean, he does talk about Al, Al, Al a few times. Yeah, I, you know, there was an immense amount of pressure on him. He changed. You know, he became a different person. You know, those pressures, I don't know. 
I don't know. I mean, he felt the burden of having to write everything, at least musically anyway. And so every album that came out, he knew that that responsibility was on me. He was mad at Mike for not contributing. But honestly, between you and I, Mike could have bought in 10 songs to the band. And my guess would be Ed would have said, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have taken any of them. And Ed would have said, here's my 10 ideas, you know, and, and Ed's songs would have been the ones that got chosen anyway. I mean, I don't know that. I'm, I'm of course, you know, just basically guessing, but uh, that would be my perception, right? Right, right. But, but it wasn't what Mike was physically going to bring. It was just the fact that Mike would have sat there and, and written down a couple ideas. That's all Edward wanted to see on. Um, you know, Ed knew that he wasn't as good a writer as he was. I mean, Ed wasn't stupid, you know, and, and he talks about it. You know, Mike was intimidated. And Ed said, well, he's got to get over that, you know. Uh, Mike was in the band for seven years. And look, it's easy to be intimidated by Edward Van Halen. I saw I, every single person who was around him felt like that. I'm talking about amazing guitar players. You know, so I get it. I, I mean, my God, I was. I wasn't intimidated musically because I, it's not like I was a guitar player in the band. But just, you know, to be around him, man, that was... Uh, you know, there was not a lot of oxygen left in the room through no fault of his. But yeah, Mike could have come in with 10 ideas. And honestly, I think Ed would have taken an idea. So I don't think it was what Mike was going to do. I just think it was the fact that Mike never did it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ed was a, you know, in some respects, he was a pretty, you know, this is who I am kind of person. In other respects, he was, you know, uh, still waters run deep. Well, and he was he was brutally honest, according to a lot of people, right? So he would be nice and passive, but then also turn on the drop of a dime and be sort of cutting, which I actually heard uh, was true about his brother. I heard his brother could be very aggressive and, and hard-nosed at times, but I mean, there's a lot of revelations in this book that I found were fairly interesting, starting with the fact that, you know, you met Ed, but you had never heard uh, them play. And then when you heard, when you got the first Van Halen debut album and dropped the needle on it, you were pretty much meh. You were like, eh, I don't get it. And then you talked about spending time with that album and something clicked. Do you know what clicked for you? What was it that clicked on that first Van Halen where you were very meh? And I know if I had grown up at that point in time in 1978, and had been listening to the Creams and the Becks and the Hendrix, and I dropped the needle on that Van Halen record. To me, sonically, I mean, that's the thing that sticks out, especially for 1978. Sonically, it just sounds completely different than anything, the, the distortion and the guitar, and then you get to, you know, track two and, and uh, eruption. I'd have been like, as a guitar player, as a guitar magazine writer, as anything, I'd have been like, holy shit, what is this? But it wasn't that for you. What clicked? You know, listening to Jeff Beck Truth and Beckola and Blow by Blow and Wheels of Fire and Blind Faith and the early Free Records and Trower and Purple Harem, I mean, man, my standards were extraordinarily high. And, you know, you, you, you say that, you know, hearing that, would have, you know, taken all that early stuff and, and moved it forward. To me, it, it, it just, on the initial listening, it just didn't move the needle for me. I thought, you know, I, I listened to Jeff, Jeff Beck's Guitar and Truth, and, you know, he's talking about, where is that, 68? 
And I thought, my God, listen to that, listen to those guitar sounds on a, I think it was maybe a four track, maybe a 16 track. That's what I was comparing it to. It was also hard to get, get past Dave's vocals. I, I've never been a fan of Dave's. Yeah. I think he was an integral part of the band and what he did. But, you know, I was, again, I was used to hearing vocalists, you know, like Jack Bruce and Stevie Winwood and Paul Rogers. I mean, that's, that's what my ear was tuned to. So I'm listening to that first time he went record for the first time. And it, again, it, it just sounds to me like Deep Purple on speed, you know, fast shuffles, you know, and I, I, I think, you know, in rock and machine head, I thought, my God, those, those records smoke the first Van Halen record. But then I thought, I, I've got to be missing something, you know, I'm being too myopic. I'm being too snobbish about it. And the next day I said, okay, I'm going to listen to this thing top to bottom. So I put it down, you know, I started listening and I go, oh, that's what everybody's talking about. There's that guitar sound, man, that's so fucking big coming out of the speakers. And you, you can hear every note. And I've never heard anybody play vibrato like that. And yeah, the eruption thing. And what is that? And, and, and the way the riffs went together. And, yet, you know, the single track of, of the rhythm guitars that dropped out for the solos, which I've always freaking loved. So I got it, you know. And I was also afraid, I think, maybe maybe subconsciously, that Ember Van Halen was a death knell of all those guitar players that I loved. That all of a sudden Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and Pete Townsend—they're not going to mean anything anymore. They still did. <laughs> Certainly, Edward was the uh, clarion call for that whole generation of guitar players. You know, I mean, he was a once-in-a-lifetime. Uh, you know, to me, there were four or five guitar players that that were absolute building blocks. You know, Jeff Beck, Hendrix. You know, Ed. I mean, you know, maybe Chuck Berry if you want to think of it like that. But uh, besides the fact that he was building his own guitars and playing them. Yeah. Okay. It's one thing to build them, but to play them and to extract those kinds of tones out of a, a home built guitar by finding bits and pieces, to me, that was nobody had done that. Les Paul was the only person I thought I could think of. And then, you know, later Brian May. Who else built their own guitars and played them? I can't think of any other guys. Les Paul is definitely the first uh, person that comes to mind because it's really. We talk about Edward Van Halen as a guitar player, but equally an inventor. I mean, this guy was an inventor, and, and certainly EVH guitar and amps is the legacy that that has grown into today. There was so much in this book, and that's just me grazing through it. I mean, we, we're going to have to line up five more uh, conversations between you and I just to get to a normal size episode because these episodes are going to end up being, you know, 15 hours long, be as long as these Twilight tapes that you own uh, are. And it's, it's just there's, there's so many things. I mean, it's more because in a lot of this stuff, Ed said what he said. You said what you said. I'm more interested in the mindset and the thoughts behind these conversations because some of the things that come out of it is just like, I don't know. It, it's just, you know, these tapes, these tapes of, of random music at 5150, do you think we'll ever hear any of this stuff? And what do you think it would take to get some of those things out to see the light and get them finished? Is it going to take Wolfie going through everything? You know, I mean, I'm I'm no uh, prognosticator. I don't see it happening for a very long time if it does. I mean, Wolf's got his career, which doesn't seem to be slowing down. I mean, to do that, you need to take hours and weeks and months. I mean, you know, going through and extracting all the best stuff. I mean, 
I don't see it ever happening. But, you know, maybe one day down the road, you know. What's disheartening to me as a fan is that Eddie talked about writing all this music i mean there were there were several times where he said i got four albums worth of material five albums worth of material yet over the course of a 30 plus year career van halen put out 12 albums and to me what drives me nuts about that is the first five albums came pretty rapidly from 78 to 82 you got one album a year which is great but then at some point, it just basically goes to a dead stop. And it's just, this band is notorious for being their own worst enemy. Is that Ed? Is it Dave? Is it Sammy? Because it didn't all happen only when Dave was in the band. It happened when Sammy was in the band. So, I mean, why do you not think we got more albums? Why don't we have 20 albums worth of material over the course of a 35-year career? What do you think? You know, I can only sort of answer that question as the parallel, in a way, to the book. Here, so I go back to '85, and and I'm I'm starting to work on that book, and I'm trying to get Ed to sit down with me so we can conduct all these other interviews. You know, uh, I wanted to talk to Ed about Randy Rhodes and his influences, and you know, what was it like when he was a six-year-old kid back in you know the Netherlands, and you know, what was the relationship really like with his brother and his family and I could never get Ed to sit for those interviews and when I you know I'd push and I'd push and with Ed it was you know well I don't think now is the right time and I think I just think that goes to Ed he just didn't see I don't think as much as I think he really wanted to do the book or he never would have signed a contract or he would said no man I really don't want to do the book I don't want to sign a contract don't spend any time on it he could have certainly said that to me I just don't think he ever saw the importance of it at all in terms of, and it goes back to the thing I said earlier about him not understanding his own legacy. I don't think he understood that, that it had any import whatsoever. Not that he needed my book to further his career anyway, but just that it was just another piece. Um, you know, you think about all those artists who had books out on them, um, you know, just being part of the legacy. And that goes to the same reason there's never been a definitive box set. Why? You know, can you imagine the box that they could put together? I just don't think that whoever, you know, has the keys to the vault, they, they just, I don't know if they see the importance or how much it would mean to fans. I, I don't know. You know, I, I know that Ed, Ed just never thought about it in those terms. So it just never got done. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Look at all the people here tonight. to make an announcement right here. Can you hear me out there? It's time to take a quick break in the action from this week's episode. Sonny and I just wanted to thank all of you, the listeners, for joining us each and every week. Whether you just found us today or have been listening for multiple episodes, we love your passion for music and rock and roll in general. We consider you all part of our loud minority family. Always remember you can communicate with us a few different ways. If you don't mind Facebook, head over to the Growing Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group and be part of the conversation. It's a private group and all you have to do is ask to join, answer a few rock and roll questions, and you're in. If you despise Facebook, which many people do, then send us an email 
to growinguprock at gmail.com. We get everything there. You can follow us on Twitter and Insta at growinguprock, which is one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K. In the event you feel entertained by our podcast, we would appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and go leave us a five-star review either at Apple Podcast or Podchaser. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. You like playing this game as much as I do where we play the what if game, right? You know the what if game, right? (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of people, including the band, want to give Roth a bunch of shit. But the honest truth is, is if Roth never happens, I don't think Van Halen ever happens. So my thought is, what would eddie be doing what would he end up doing would he just have become like an alan holdsworth or joe satriani where he's just this incredible solo guitar player and people love him or would he ended up just being you know a guitar designer for fender gibson or grover jackson or charvel you know would he have just been another great musician who worked in a factory for the rest of his life because honestly if you read the books and and know the history, I mean, it really was sort of Dave's vision and his kick in the ass to the rest of the band that got things up and running because the, otherwise they just sort of floundered in the clubs forever and a day. It seems like to me anyway, that's my, my perception of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I mean, I think, I, I think Ed understood the, the need to move away from backyard parties and, you know, from the start, would move up to the strip and, you know, from Gazzari's and then, you know, move into the whiskey. I mean, Dave was certainly integral to a lot of that stuff. You know, a lot of the look of the band and he was absolutely vital to that. In terms of what would Ed, what would Ed be doing? I mean, we have to assume that Edward doesn't get sick, you know, so he's not sick and he, he continues playing. I think Edward, if everything else being said, I think Edward would have kept the original band together. I think it would have still been together to this day if those pieces could have come together. Um, I don't think Ed ever wanted to change members, really. You know, Mike and Dave would, would have still been in the band. Short of that, I mean, I think there were some solo records Ed probably would have would have done. I, I can't imagine Ed ever abandoning playing guitar or writing. You know, I mean, would he have gone on to continue designing guitars? Probably. can't imagine he would be working in a factory, you know, building guitars. But. Well, before we get out of here, because I don't want to keep you all night long, and I would love to have you back on and and go further into things because there's a million things and that like i said again that's just for me going through various chapters and picking out oh my god pieces Uh, i can't wait to really sit and read the book from cover to cover and really dig deep into it but can you tell the listeners exactly where they can get the book and all this information that steve is going to give you guys we're going to put in the show notes so don't try to write this down while you're riding down the highway. Go ahead, Steve. Cool. So you can find Tone Chaser, all the books come shrink wrap, on my site, tonechaserbook.com. Pretty simple, one word, tonechaserbook.com. That's a pretty fun site. I've got a bunch of cool pictures up there and, you know, of, of Edward and me and, and a lot of the other guitar players we were speaking about earlier are up there and uh, you can uh, see some YouTube stuff and, and um, some various things I put up. 
So tonechaserbook.com. You can also find it on Amazon, eBay, Reverb, and Etsy. If anybody goes to Etsy. And if you're ever up in Hollywood, uh, go go stop by Book Soup. It's a very famous independent bookstore on Sunset Boulevard and just on the street from the Whiskey from where I met Edward that very first uh, night back in 77. You can find the book there. Yeah. So I, I hope you go out and check out the second edition. It's the same as the first. And uh, if you dig in the book, leave those reviews on Amazon. Amazon loves those reviews. And so do I, to be honest. Steve Rosen, author of Tone Chaser basically your life with Edward Van Halen over the course of 26 years or so. Uh, it's an incredible book. There's so many amazing moments. There's so many uncomfortable moments. There's so many just a complete window into Edward Van Halen as a person. And it's a must read. I can't wait to read it cover to cover because I've just, uh, I've enjoyed reading just various chapters as I bounced around in preparing for my conversation with Steve. Hopefully we'll have Steve back on to talk about the book even further. Until then, Steve Rosen, I appreciate you being a guest on the Growing Up Rock podcast. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Stephen, so much. It was a Growing Up podcast, man. You dug into some nether regions here, man. It was very cool. Very cool, man. Very happy I was on. All right. See ya. That's the show. So let's shuffle, rattle, and roll us out of here. Until next week. Always remember, peace, love, and rock and roll. What else is left? <laughs> Insanity. <laughs> hey, we know how to do heart. We know how to do acapella of happy trails. Just sing a song and think about Sunny. Growing Up Rock is a proud member of the Pantheon Network. Pantheon is the place for music lovers. Check us out along with many other great music podcasts on the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 